0: Thank you. No teaching would be complete on the end times without looking at the subject of Israel. Um, and that's what we're going to do this morning. So I'd like you to take your Bibles then and uh, turn to Psalm 122. And we'll start reading at verse 6. Where we're told, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls prosperity within your palaces for the sake of my brethren and companions I will now say peace be within you because of the house of the Lord our God I will seek your good so in this psalm we're instructed to pray for the peace of Jerusalem but realistically can we expect there to be any real peace in the middle east when you consider that the word peace doesn't just mean the absence of war the laying down of hostilities or or tolerating one another peace is the presence of harmony it's learning to give uh, learning to live harmoniously together can we honestly expect there to be peace in the middle east with what we know there have been attempts at peace we've had the oslo accord the Geneva Accord, Roadmap, and so on. And they've all failed miserably. So, can we pray for peace in the Middle East? The problem we have, as you can see here, and we're going to use uh, PowerPoint this morning because there's a number of verses just because of time. But the problem in the Middle East, the conflict there, is a collision between an unrelenting force, which is Islam, and an immovable object which is Israel and so we're going to look at those two just very briefly first of all I want to look at Islam and I want to say right up front that I am not anti-Muslim I don't hate Muslims neither should you Uh, God loves Muslims God loves all people Jesus died on the cross to redeem people from every kind of background and uh, I get annoyed when I get emails that uh, uh, basically are anti-Muslim and uh, want us to try to keep Muslims from coming into this country. I don't see the sense of that as a Christian. I, You know, the, the Bible says that we're to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We cannot go into many of those Muslim countries and take the gospel there. But God is bringing them to us. We're here for the kingdom. Let's reach out with the love of God and the, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to uh, whoever we can while we have opportunity. Um, I have... Uh, Palestinian friends uh, that I made 25 years ago that I've I keep in touch with to this day Palestinian Christians I've stayed in the home of a Palestinian family in in Gaza uh, overnight I don't think I'll be as brave to do it today I was a bit reckless in those days Um, we have an Arabian Egyptian friend from uh, an Arab friend from Egypt I meant to say who we sponsored through our Bible school in New Zealand and uh, sent him back to Egypt where for the last 25 years he's headed up quite a significant ministry there. I cannot give details because he has to be protected because he's in danger all the time. But we have, we have many Arab friends and Palestinian friends and connections. And um, they're our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not against Arabs, we're not against Muslims. And neither is God. But when it comes to the, the situation in the Middle East... Islam is an unrelenting force that is set upon one object, which is to drive Israel out of the Middle East. Now, let's just look, look at this in perspective. There are approximately 700 million Muslims living in the Middle East and the greater Middle East in comparison to 5 million Jews. In other words, there are 140 times as many Muslims As there are jews in the middle east if you want to look at that in terms of uh, land mass muslims occupy 800 times as much land as israel or in let me say that in another way israel has 0.13 percent of the land that muslims occupy it's just a little postage stamp on the on that vast map and so Yet they still want to drive Israel out of the Middle East. Why is that? Well, it's not political. It's theological. And uh, if those that keep talking about making peace deals would really understand this, they would see that there's no hope for man-made peace in the Middle East. Because the problem is a deep theological one, and it's this. That if land which once was occupied by Muslims falls into the hands of infidels, there has to be a jihad declared against that nation to bring the land back under Islamic sovereignty. And so theologically, it's impossible for a land like Israel, which has been occupied for a thousand years by Muslims, to rest in their hands and for them to be at peace about that and come to some deal about that. It's theological theologically impossible it, it, it would be to deny everything they stand for and uh, so there's no compromise on this situation now you see this in many ways if you if you go to Palestine today and uh, go to one of the schools and look at an, a, an atlas uh, the land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea is called Palestine there's no mention of a state of Israel there's no acknowledgement of a state of Israel I've been to Israel twice Um, and each time I went from uh, an Arab land into Israel, and at that time, I don't know what it's like now, but um, you did not have your passport stamped in Israel, because if you did, you couldn't get back into an Arab state, because they would look at your passport and they say, that country does not exist, so we cannot let you into this country, we don't know where you've come from. They would not acknowledge the presence, so they would stamp a piece of paper, and put that in your passport, and then you you have that stamped when you go out, and you can go out and and your passport is untouched. They do not acknowledge the presence of Israel. Uh, When Yasser Arafat was alive, and incidentally he was not a Palestinian, he was born in Egypt, one of his chief negotiators said, we want Jerusalem as the capital of a Palestinian state, and we want Jaffa, Nazareth, and Haifa. We would like to see the Jews settle west of Tel Aviv in the Mediterranean Sea. Now, Israel's number one enemy today is Iran, as you probably know if you're following what's happening in the news. Iran actually denies the Holocaust ever took place. And they constantly, without shame, say that their intention is to wipe Israel off the face of the map of the Middle East. They say that Israel is a cancer in the Middle East, which has to be cut out. So when we hear this uh, discussion about a two-state solution in the Middle East, we know that that's a total lie. I can say that confidently, because the Palestinians have one goal, and it's a one-state existence in the Middle East. There's no room for Israel in the Middle East. Now, when we come to um, Israel... Um, we need to understand this. first of all that there are three major themes in the Bible. The first is Christ. The second is Israel, the nation through which Messiah would come. He would be the seed of Abraham. And the third is the church, which is the body of Christ. So all other themes relate to those three themes. Now Israel as a land or a people is mentioned, 2,500, times at least so if your theology does not include israel in some way i've got to say you're imbalanced in your understanding of the word of god you need to have an understanding of god's purpose about israel now paul says that to gentiles in the book of romans when he teaches about god's purpose After he's spoken about salvation in Christ and our our position in him, our righteousness in him, what about Israel? Chapters 9, 10, and 11. And he says this, he admonishes Gentiles, he names us by, by name. He says, the new Gentiles need to understand that the falling away of Israel resulted in salvation to the church. Because Israel was put on one side, God has now turned to the nations of the world to call out a people for himself, which we call the church. And he said, if they're falling away with salvation, what will their gathering be again for the church, but life from the dead? And so we need to understand what God is doing in Israel because um, it is a major theme in the Bible. Now, what does the Bible say about Israel? Why is it an immovable object? Why is it going nowhere as far as uh, the Middle East is concerned? Well, because when God singled out... Israel as a nation, he purposed for them to possess a land which he had prepared for them. Now, he can do that because the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Amen? It's his world. If he wants to give a portion of land to a specific people, he's at liberty to do that. And that's what he did. We read in, uh, uh, I don't know whether you can read that, I hope some of you can, but at the front probably, but in Genesis chapter 17, I give the references in verse 8, he says this, Also I give to you, he's speaking to Abraham by the way, Also I give to you and your descendants after you, the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, and look at this, I've underlined it, as an everlasting possession. That means forever and ever. Just as we have everlasting life. It's the same word. It means forever and ever. If your Bibles are still open in the Psalms, turn back with me to Psalm 105, and we'll just look at a few verses there, starting at verse six, Psalm 105 and verse six. He says, "O seed of Abraham, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones, He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. So there it is confirmed. God has given this land to this people forever. Now, some people say, but they don't deserve it. Look at the way they behave. And nobody is saying that Israel in all their behavior is um, uh, spotless or or, or squeaky clean. They have made mistakes. They've done things wrong. But that is not the issue. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 5, Moses said this to the people of Israel. He said, it is not... Because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of those nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, and that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, first of all, he's saying it's not because Israel is anything better than anyone else. It's because, first of all, the nation that was in that land called the Canaanites were the most wicked people on the whole face of the earth. You remember, if you know your Bibles, God actually waited 400 years for them to fill up the measure of their iniquity. They offered their babies, their children, and burned them alive as a sacrifice to their gods, hoping to invoke some power and favor from their gods. They were into child sacrifices as well as a lot of Uh, sexual sin and so on and God said they filled up the measure of their sin and therefore Israel was to go in and to cleanse the land and take possession but it was not because of their righteousness it was because of the covenant that God had made with Israel and so you can see very clearly just from the scriptures we've looked at at the moment that in the purposes of God Israel is a unique nation. God has not made this kind of agreement with any other nation in all the earth his favor is upon them now another thing is this that often in the word of God he refers to the land of Israel as quote my land that is his land for example in Joel 3 and verse 2 he says I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat and I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people my heritage Israel When they have scattered among the nations, they have also, so whom they have scattered among the nations, they have also divided up, quote, my land. So God comes to them and says, This is my land. When you touch that land, it's not their land, it's my land which I've given to them. Now, also, as far as Israel is concerned, God does not look favorably upon Israel when they come to the the table to negotiate land for peace, to sell off his land to a foreign people. In Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 23, he says, the land shall not be sold permanently for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. In other words, I gave it to you for the purpose that I have for you. And so God does not sanction and any kind of peace that comes out of a deal which is land for peace will always be a forced peace, will never be a lasting peace. Now, on three occasions, uh, Israel have left their land for a significant period of time and you would think that's it now, they've lost their land, but God miraculously brought them back into the land to demonstrate that he's given the land to them. For example, when Jacob and his family went down to Egypt, you remember, um, in the time of famine, and then there arose another pharaoh that didn't know Joseph, and uh, uh, Israel became enslaved, and uh, they were they were in, uh, slaves in this nation of Israel, the most powerful nation on earth. And then God stretched forth His hand after 430 years, and came against Pharaoh with the ten plagues, resulting in him actually letting Israel go, but then changing his mind and pursuing them and God parting the Red Sea, the great miracle, the whole of Israel passing over on dry ground and then the sea coming back and drowning the Egyptians as they were in pursuit of Israel. What an incredible deliverance. We call it the Exodus. It was the beginnings of, of Israel as a nation in that sense. And um, uh, all Israel looks back to that, those miraculous beginnings, of their 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 race the second time of course is when they broke the mosaic covenant and were carried away into captivity to babylon and they were there for 70 years that's two generations and 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 you think that's it they've lost their land forever but god incredibly touched a heathen king called cyrus who issued an edict that they could go back to their land and rebuild their city of jerusalem and rebuild the temple Now, after this time, though, they were settled in their land. I mean, most of the people were born in Babylon. They had jobs there. They had homes there. They had a life there. And so they were reluctant to go back. But God stirred up a remnant of about 50,000, which became the seed again of the new nation of Israel in that land. And then the third time, of course, is when they rejected their Messiah. And in AD 70, the Romans came against Israel against Jerusalem, raised the city to the ground, burned and destroyed the temple, and scattered the people around the earth, the nations of the world. This is what Jesus said concerning that. In Luke chapter 21 and verse 24, And they, uh, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. In other words that marked a very clear um, uh, different dispensation when God was uh, put Israel as it were on the shelf for thousands of years and turned to the nations and began to send the gospel to the nations and from every tribe and nation and people is calling out uh, a people for himself this is the times of the Gentiles but now that we see Israel back in Jerusalem we know that the times of the Gentiles are fast coming to a close. We're drawing near to the end of the age and that's one of the clear signs that support that. And yet even in the Old Testament God said that these things would happen and he says for example in uh, Ezekiel chapter uh, sorry Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 11, he says, "For I am with you says the Lord, to save you though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you, yet I will not make a complete end of you." Miraculously, you will be preserved. He said, even the nations that you go to, I will make an end of them. Has anybody ever heard of a Russian Ammonite? Or an American Edomite? Or a German Moabite? Those nations have gone. They do not exist. Nobody can trace those people anymore. But have you heard of a Russian Jew? An American Jew? A German Jew? Yes, you have. And here's the wonderful thing. Those that study um, human races say this, that if a people is dispossessed and is lifted from their land and taken to other countries scattered around the world, within five generations, there'll be no trace of them. They'll be so absorbed into the nations where they've been scattered. They will intermingle, intermarry, and their separate uh, identity will totally be erased five generations but for 1900 years God has preserved Israel in all these nations where he has scattered them and kept them distinct so that they could identify at all times their roots in Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 35 to 36 we read these words thus says the Lord who gives the Sun for a light by day the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and and, and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If these ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Isn't that amazing? God says, if ever you get up one day and the sun has not risen, The sun has stopped rising. Then you know that I'm finished with Israel. But my covenant with Israel is as sure as the rise and set of sun. I am committed in an everlasting covenant to that people. Now, even in those times that Israel was not dwelling in their land, it was still referred to as their land. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 24 he says for i will take you from among the nations gather you out of all the countries and bring you into your own land and then in amos chapter 9 and verse 15 he says this i will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land i have given them says the lord your god now it's very clear that um Israel is unique amongst the nations. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 32, verse 8, we read this. I'm going to read it to you. It says, When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when He separated the sons of Adam, He set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. That's remarkable. He's saying that when God actually determined the borders and the boundaries of every nation there are what over 200 nations in the world today he did it with israel in mind everything would be around israel at the center and, and at the hub um, it's quite remarkable when you look at a world match, a map today israel is smack bang in the middle of the world directly to the west is washington to the east is beijing to the north is Moscow and, and, and it's the knot of the rope that brings together three continents Africa, Asia and Europe and it's right in the middle it's the center of our world. Now let's just quickly fast-track because our time is going and just talk about more recent times um, it's it, you know the, the, the whole situation of the Holocaust was a, a terrible thing and it's hard to understand why that should be allowed to happen. But one thing we know is this, that if it didn't happen, Israel would have remained remained complacent in the nations where they were scattered. It became the catalyst for them fulfilling prophecy to seek their own homeland. Um, After the last world war, um, they were determined, no more can we be safe amongst the nations. For 1900 years they experienced anti-semitism, climaxing in the Holocaust, and so they needed a place and the United Nations agreed with that. In 1947 the United Nations announced that the 800,000 Jews that were living in Israel should be given a portion of land as their own, so that they could have their own place to dwell. There was discussions about it, Uh, in fact some people recommended a, uh, a part of Africa be where they settle. But God had his hand upon this because the word of God was very clear where they would go. They would go back to their own land. And this, of course, was spoken thousands of years ago, at least um, over a thousand years ago. It's before that time. It says um, uh, in in, in Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 6, I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. And in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 8, Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth among among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and the one who labors with child together. A great throng shall return there. And, and, you know, we're living in the the age that has seen the regathering, the miraculous regathering of israel like ezekiel said you know the 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 bones that were in the graves that the bones would come out of the graves and would reassemble as a body again a miraculous thing in our time we've seen it come to pass now you notice in two of those scriptures it talks about the north country which is a reference to russia where most of the jews were, were or i say many a large portion hundreds and hundreds of thousands were in russia and uh, Russia was not going to let them go. And then many of us saw on TV that that incredible day just happened almost out of the blue. There was no real preparation when communism just collapsed. You know, communism became communism. <laughs> and uh, we saw on our TV screens, you know, them actually literally dismantling the Berlin Wall. We thought, well, I can't believe this is happening, you know. And, and, and that opened the way for all the Jews to come out of Russia, and to come back again to their homeland. Now in 1948, the state of Israel was officially birthed, endorsed by the United Nations, and the Arabs in Palestine from that day, together with the Arab nations, went to war against Israel, and they have never known a day of peace ever since. There were several wars. We just quickly mentioned there was, first of all, the war of independence. Israel was just a nation, a fledgling nation. Hardly had time to gather any arms. And they went to war against the Arab might. And incredibly overcame them. The whole world asked, how could this be? There's only one answer to that, and that is that God's hand was miraculously upon them. Eight years later was the Suez War and uh, uh, Egypt was a very strong established nation. They had um, uh, power over the Suez Canal which they, they closed uh, restricting access to Is- Israel. They um, uh, occupied the Gaza Strip which the PLO were using. Uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the Palestinians were using for, for their purposes. Um, they also... Um, was strongly aligned to the Soviet Union. They had the backing of Russia. And Israel were eight years old when the war started. Israel took 5,581 prisoners of war. The Egyptians took four. <laughs> the Israelis lost 172 of their men. Egypt lost tens of thousands. An incredible miraculous victory for Israel. The the whole world was asking again what is it about this nation? In 1967 came the Six-Day War and by this time Arab forces were amassing on all borders of Israel. It started with Egypt again. Egypt closed the Suez Canal which meant that Israel had no access, no supplies and especially no oil coming through. Um, they, Egypt also dispelled, expelled I should say, the UN peacekeepers in that area, in, in, in the land. They also uh, made an, a covenant with Jordan. The two of them ended into a covenant that they were one, as one nation. So they would have common enemies. One, If a nation attacks you, they attack us. We're in this together. And it was very clear that the troops were amassing on all borders. So it was very clear a war was imminent. So what should Israel do? Just wait till it was attacked or take out a preemptive strike? They chose the preemptive strike option. And in just three hours, 286 Egyptian aircraft were destroyed for the loss of 19 Israeli aircraft. Now, for some reason, which I've never heard a satisfactory explanation Syria did not attack while Israel were caught up with Egypt. That was the ideal time to come in. While they were all caught up down there in the south. But for some reason they didn't. And so that gave Israel the chance to go against Syria. They took possession of the Golan Heights and kept advancing until within 50 kilometers of Damascus. They were met by a, a, a UN peacekeeping force who said if you don't stop now the Russians are coming in. Now, also, and we need to say this, and this is well documented, you can, you can find this on the internet, this stuff, it's very well documented. Israel made it very clear to Jordan, do not get involved with this war. Do, this has nothing to do with you, keep out of it, and we will not touch you. But in the famous words of King Hussein, he said, the die is cast. We've already committed. And so Israel then went against Jordan, took possession of the West Bank and Jerusalem. And uh, these are now occupied territories, as we know to this day. Um, The next war was the Yom Kippur War, which which was a very difficult war for Israel. In fact, the Arabs were much better prepared in 1973. And they were very smart. They did a couple of smart things. First of all, they faked a couple of attacks which put Israel on high war alert, which drained their economy. You keep doing that, and eventually a nation's gonna go broke. And so they really um, uh, struck hard in that tactic. But the second thing they did is that they went to war on the most holy day in the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when uh, many of the soldiers were off duty. And for three weeks, Israel were pounded, so much so that it looked like they were finished as a nation. The Israeli cabinet met and discussed the possibility of using nuclear weapons. That that would have been a real possibility. See, we, one thing that we need to understand about the mentality of Israel is that there's one thing that's uppermost in their mind, and you can talk to any Israeli; they'll tell you this: it's survival. They've had 1900 years of persecution, they've gone through the Holocaust and uh, they don't really give much regard to world opinion. Their whole aim is survival. We've got to look after ourselves. Nobody else is going to look after us, we will look after ourselves. They seriously discussed using nuclear weapons to survive. Gradually the war turned in their favour and kept getting stronger and stronger and stronger in their favour until they brought Egypt and Syria on the point of collapse, total collapse. At that point, there were several um, Russian airborne divisions that were prepared to go in against Israel, and the United States also put their troops and their air force on high alert. Thankfully, everything just died down from them, and Israel emerged again victoriously in 1982 was what was called the lebanon war um, the plo was setting up camps in lebanon and making raids on israel but israel were not provoked into battle they, they 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 exercised a lot of restraint until the plo tried to assassinate the israeli ambassador to the uk and that was their trigger to go in and they 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 um uh, Bombed a lot of these PLO camps. The PLO responded with a, a barrage of rockets causing fifty million dollars worth of damage, but only three Israeli casualties, amazing, out of all that barrage of rockets going in. And uh, Israel re- retaliated by going in and landing paratroopers behind uh, the the uh, PLO forces and camps. Now let me say this that at this stage also, the the Syrians got involved with their air force. They had 200 Russian MiG jet fighters. And the Israelis had 250 jets. It was the biggest aerial battle, I think, since Second World War. And uh, within three days, 92 of Syria's Russian MiGs were taken out for the loss of one Israeli plane. Syria lost... 70% 70% of its trained air force and they decided to pull out of the war at that stage because it, it was just all over for them. Now when, the, when, the, when, when Israel went in to, um, the, to to Lebanon, which incidentally Lebanon was the only Christian nation in that region until the PLO and the Arabs actually took over their nation. And uh, when they went in, the, the Lebanese saw them they were ecstatic. They saw them as liberators that had come to release them from their captors. And when they, when, they, when they went in, here's a remarkable thing. There were 23 missile batteries deployed in Lebanon, Russian, and it was the same missile batteries that were deployed all over the Warsaw Pact countries. In other words, it was Russia's prime defense against America and NATO and Israel went in and took out all 23 batteries without firing one shot. The Pentagon dispatched an official immediately with one urgent question, how did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> Which is what all the rest of the world was asking, when, when, the, when Israel went in. They discovered there was much more equipment that the PLO had than what they originally uh, envisaged. In fact, 10 times the amount. They had 500 tanks, for example. They come across North Koreans building a Russian base to be manned by Russians. And uh, they confiscated all that stuff, of course. Another incredible victory. And you can only put it down to the hand of God. Now, as we wind up this morning, I'd like you to turn to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. Because we asked the question, can we expect peace in the Middle East? Just going to read the first three verses of this chapter. Zechariah chapter 12. It says, The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him behold I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem and it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples who all who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. So God says this, that Jerusalem won't be a flashpoint, it'll be a powder keg in the last days. It is the center, it is the trigger of the end times. It is the focal, the gathering point around which all nations will come, obsessed with laying claim to Jerusalem, taking it from Israel and claiming it as their own. Today, one and a half billion Muslims call it their holy city. One billion Roman Catholics say, no, it's ours. In fact, Roman Catholics believe what we call replacement theology. That is that they are now the Israel of God. 400 million Orthodox Christians say, no, it's ours. 400 million Protestants say, no, it's our holy city. It's where our Savior died, etc. All want a piece of Jerusalem. Do Muslims really have any valid claim to the city? Well, the Quran never once directs Muslims to Jerusalem for pilgrimage never says, go to this city for a pilgrimage. In fact, it never once mentions Jerusalem by name. Although in the Bible, it's mentioned 800 times by name. And during the centuries when Jerusalem was under Arab control, no Arab ruler ever made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So why all of a sudden did it become their third most holy city? after Mecca, Medina, now Jerusalem. What happened? i tell you what happened. In the 1920s, when God began to gather again Jews back to the land, the Mufti of Jerusalem, who happened to be the uncle of Yasser Arafat, noticed what was happening and so created a myth. And the myth was this. It was from this place that Muhammad ascended to heaven so automatically this is now our holy place and uh, we know the dome of the rock is there now you, whenever you see a map of Israel what do you see the golden dome which is the dome of the rock what's on the end of that because that's built on the temple area what's at the end of that is the wailing wall which is the Jews by the way don't like you calling it the wailing wall it's the western wall it's the western part of their temple and so it's, it's, it's the meeting of the two But this myth was created so as to create a holy place for Israel. All the countries of the world do not acknowledge Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, even though the Knesset has been there since 1980, and it says it is our capital. No other country would allow outsiders to dictate where they can have their capital. We'd be a little bit annoyed if somebody says, no, Canberra's not your capital, it's Sydney. We'd get a little bit uptight about that, wouldn't we? Even the USA will not have its embassy in Jerusalem. It has it in Tel Aviv. Why is it? Why is it this fascination? God says, Jerusalem will be such that all the nations will come up against it. But it will be like a cup in which there is an intoxicating drink. When they take this cup, they will reel back out of control it will be like them trying to heave away a heavy stone the stone will roll upon them and cut them in pieces it will be like a pile of kindling wood into which someone throws a flaming torch whoosh, and it all goes up that is jerusalem in the end times jesus said this about jerusalem wherever the carcasses there the eagles will be gathered together. Now now that's strange because eagles do not gather around carrion, dead meat. They they go for live meat, right? So Jesus said where the carcass is there, the eagles will be gathered together. Now what he was saying is this in fact the word eagles there is not the eagle that we know. It's actually a, a griffon vulture which is bigger and more powerful than an eagle. And it has an, an uncanny ability to scent where there is carrion, where there is food, where there is dead meat. And, and uh, there are examples, for example, in the Russian war, um, uh, these these birds came to Crimea where they, they don't normally congregate in that area. They came to Crimea, Crimea uh, because of the incredible slaughter that was taking place there. And... Jesus, in speaking about the end times in Matthew 24 and talking about Jerusalem, says where the, where the carcass is, the carcass is a fallen body. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a body that's dead. See, Israel is a body. The bones have come out of the graves of the nations where they were buried. They've come out of the graves. They've been assembled as a body, but the body is dead. Spiritually, it is dead. Because the veil is over Israel's eyes. In fact, Israel is the only nation that the Bible says that God has blinded their eyes. God has put a a veil over them. All the other nations, the Bible says the devil has blinded the eyes of those who are are dead in trespasses and sins. Amen? But God has put a veil over Israel until this time. And two things are going to happen when the nations come up against Israel. First of all, concerning the nations, God says this, Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself And I will be known in the eyes of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord. God will reveal himself in judgment in that battle when all the nations come against Israel. Now, our time has run out, but I received some information this week, which uh, I've checked out um, uh, on the internet, uh, and and it's, it's verified much of it through many newspapers. And that is that there is, a, there is a, an incredible shift in America's support for Israel. Their last remaining true ally uh, is now beginning to change their support. There are, some, there are some statistics that will absolutely alarm you in the way that they have turned against Israel. You can check it out. You look at the last meeting between Netanyahu and um, uh, Obama on the net, not, not the one that took place in 2009. But the one that took place in March this year and you will notice that there's a, an incredible chilling of relationship. In fact uh, Netanyahu was humiliated and insulted by Obama at that meeting and um, the claims that he's making upon him and demands and so on uh, are all tilted in favour of the Muslims. Many of the landing strips and bases where Israel could go and you know, use the US bases to refuel in a time of war have now been withdrawn from them. They are totally alone. It's quite interesting. All these things are happening. But here's the other thing that's going to happen. The Bible says this, that when Jesus comes, not only will he be known to the nations, but that's the time that the veil will be lifted from the eyes of the Jews. They will look on him whom they pierced. They will see that the Messiah truly has come died in their place. They were the ones that crucified him, but he died for them to redeem them. And the Bible says they will believe that. In fact, Paul says that all Israel will be saved. Miraculous things that are going to happen in, in a very, very short time. Now, as we close this morning, the Bible says this, when you see these things coming to pass, look up, for your redemption is drawing nigh. Let's get perspective, people. Let's get perspective about the age in which we live. It's not going to go on and on and on. We are a privileged people to be living in the end of the end times. Let's pray together. Father, I just thank you as we behold your word and we see what is happening and how you have faithfully fulfilled prophecy, hundreds of prophecies, And Lord, that we're living in times when many of those prophecies are being fulfilled before our very eyes. Lord, we just thank you that you are the sovereign God. We began this meeting, Lord, by proclaiming your majesty, your kingship, your lordship, your kingdom. And Lord, we thank you that the times are coming when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Lord, we thank you that we gladly bow the knee to Jesus. He is our King and our Lord. And I pray that, Lord, as we move through this world, we will bring the kingdom of God. We will take the kingdom of God with us. We will proclaim your kingdom, Lord God. We would uh, operate in the power of your kingdom and for your glory. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.